We'll get started. Everybody get the new handout. I think it starts on page 38. And I think we left off on page 36. So we're just a couple pages behind. That's not too bad. So we meet tonight. Then we have next week off for Thanksgiving, right? Yep. So if you come next week, I won't be here. You're on your own. And then we'll... We'll be back for three more classes for the semester. And Lord willing, we'll finish up with Matthew 13. Yeah, and then the plan is, what, sometime in the middle, towards the end of January, somewhere in there, we, we'll start up the new semester with Matthew 14. All right, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm thankful that you've spoken to us. I'm thankful that it truly is uh, the bread of life, uh, that it gives us everything that we need for life and godliness, that it is a lamp to our feet in a dark world. I pray tonight that since we've been given this opportunity in a safe and comfortable place to sit and read and study it, that you'd help us to use our time well and that you would bless our efforts. I pray that our attention and our affections would be drawn towards Christ. And we ask for this work in His name. Amen. Alright, so we were looking when we last, last uh, met at this little block of miracles that occurs in Matthew 8 and 9. So this would be right between the first and the second of the big discourses that Jesus gives in Matthew's Gospel. It illustrates what uh, Matthew means by Jesus going around and performing great signs and miracles. And they seem to be arranged in sets of three. And then the, this healing of the mute, demon-possessed man showing up all by itself, kind of as the climax to this section. And after each set of three, there's a little bit of a story where someone has a response to Jesus. Remember, the first set ended with two negative responses. Uh, the man that wants to follow him, but then he finds out that Jesus has no place to lay his head. And then the man who wants to follow Jesus, but he wants to wait until after he's, he's buried his father. So then after those two wrong responses, we looked at the calming of the storm, the healing of the demon-possessed man, and then briefly there, Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. I don't know if we actually talked about it, but Jesus forgives this, um, the sin of this paralytic man. Remember, this is the story where the friends uh, bring him. And point A there, under 3, Jesus, you know, he forgives the sin after he sees the men demonstrating faith. Um, the religious leaders who are present you know, they ask, you know, what kind of man is this that he thinks he has the authority to uh, forgive sin? And Jesus asked them a question, well, what would be easier for me to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or for me to say, get up and take your bed and walk? And of course, from a, just a human horizontal perspective, the easier one is, say, your sins are forgiven, right? I mean, there's people today that do that. There's people today that would tell you that they have the authority to tell you that your sins are forgiven. And how are you supposed to know, right? You feel exactly the same after you leave. So the harder thing, humanly speaking, would be to actually heal this man. And so Jesus does the quote-unquote harder thing. Remember, harder in that story is just talking about a human perspective. Because actually, ultimately, uh, truly forgiving sins is something that's more difficult. And it actually will require uh, the sacrifice of Christ. But just like some of the other stories we've already seen, this healing is attached with faith. Okay, So faith is going to be a common theme through the gospel. People have to rightly recognize who Jesus is and put their trust in him that he's able to do what he says he's going to accomplish. Okay? So then you have this, this second set of responses, chapter 9, verses 9 through 17 at the bottom of the page there. Jesus calls Matthew. So here we have a, a genuine disciple, a good response. 
And then he eats with, with sinners in verses 9 through 10. You know, first you have the call of Matthew. He's, he's a tax collector. He's working there in his booth. Jesus tells him, come follow me. Matthew gets up, leaves his booth, his job evidently, and comes and follows Jesus. Then they have this dinner at Matthew's house, and there's all kinds of, it says there, tax collectors and sinners. So sinners is the broad category. So the way that's, that's constructed in the original, sinners is everybody, and then tax collectors is like a subgroup inside of that larger category. So there were other types of sinners there. And sinners was just a term used for Jewish people who didn't really have any concern for keeping the Mosaic law. In our day, we would think of them as like the secular type people. Uh, they didn't have any concern for religious things. They didn't really care if they lived like Greeks and did what the Greeks around them did. They tended to gather tax collectors because tax collectors were already looked upon as being traitors and being thieves. They would gather prostitutes, people who owned taverns, other people who operated on the fringes of society. They would have this in common that they had a disregard for the law. But Matthew, after he becomes a follower, evidently he has a meal at his house, and he invites people that were his friends because he wants them to, to meet Jesus. So the, the people here illustrate that Jesus did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. And you understand in this story, when it says righteous in verse 13, you could, you could paraphrase that as the people who think they're righteous. So Jesus did come to save people and make them righteous, but the people that he came to save, people like you and I, we weren't really righteous before he found us. The problem is that sometimes we think we are, and that's the, the Pharisees' problem, right? In verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, why is he eating with people like that? They're looking down upon that. Well, actually, the Pharisees were not even as righteous as they themselves believed. You know, they thought they're outside the group. There's sinners over there, and there's righteous people, and we belong here. And if Jesus is a religious teacher and he claims to be who he is, he should be on our side. And Jesus' response to them when he quotes from Hosea 6.6 6, is to remind them that they're just going through religious formalities. Okay, So i got a quote there at the bottom of the page. Jesus is quoting Hosea 6.6. 6, so that's the piece there where he says, For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And that passage originally described apostate Israelites who were going through religious formalities without true obedience to God. So that's very jarring. The, the prophet Hosea, he lived in the, the northern ten tribes, the apostate tribes, the ones that didn't even bother to go down and worship in Jerusalem. And he talked to them about their religious hypocrisy. And now Jesus is applying that same kind of language to these Pharisees, okay? It's kind of, uh, there's interesting things about only in Matthew's gospel, is Matthew called Matthew, remember the other gospel, he's called Levi. It also, a little clue here, I think that maybe he wrote this himself, a little uh, self-depreciation. He doesn't say that he left all. So in Luke's gospel, it says that Levi left all. Matthew leaves that out, which it's probably another indication that he's, he's talking about himself, right? Because that's not the type of thing that we would say about ourselves. But either way, Matthew's conversion is dramatically different than the two men in the, the first response, right? Remember the man who Jesus has to tell him, I don't have a house, the man who wants to wait till his father dies. Jesus just comes along to Matthew, a tax collector of all people. I mean, this is like Benedict Arnold and... and, and uh, What's the Madoff? Is that Madoff, the guy that swindled everybody in the Ponzi scheme? Yeah, it's, it's that kind of person together. You got a traitor and you got an extortionist and a thief. Those two images rolled together is how most people would have thought of a tax collector in the first century. But when Jesus calls him, he just immediately goes. This, the second part of that uh, little section there, Jesus gives a two part answer to a question posed 
by the disciples of John about fasting. So in verse 14, some disciples of John come up to him and ask why he and his disciples aren't fasting. Okay? First of all, Jesus' disciples do not need to fast while he's present. They can fast after he leaves. That's his, that's his first response in verse 15. So while the, while the bridegroom is, is with them, they should celebrate. They should have a good time. But he's already hinting that there's going to be a time where he's going to be gone, and they will have a chance to, to feast again. Okay. Second of all, they're making a mistake by just assuming that Jesus' followers are going to keep uh, going through the same customs that the Jewish people were used to under the Mosaic order. I think that's what Jesus means. He has this little, it's kind of like his first parable, so to speak. Maybe a little bit of a parable at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the foolish builder and the wise builder. But here he says, I'll read in verse 16, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So his point there in the first one, he's making the same point two different ways. First of all, he basically says there's some things that can't be patched. They just have to be replaced, okay? And we know that. You know, there that comes a point with electronics or our car or even a piece of clothing, right, where it's just not worth the effort to keep patching it. It's better just to throw it away and get a new one, okay? And he's, he's kind of gently scolding these disciples. They're not actually doing something that the law required. If this fast was required by the law, Jesus would have done it because Jesus always kept the law. But what had happened is that over a period of time, they had added further fasts to the law. So they built up extra traditions. For example, we know that they would yearly fast on the day that the temple fell to the Babylonians. That's still a fast that Orthodox religious Jews, I'm told, would keep today. And they actually believe that it falls to the the Romans on the same day of the year as it fell to the Babylonians, so that together they'll still keep those fasts. So these disciples of John, they have these traditions that they've kept, and Jesus' point is you just need to discard that whole system. You can't just take me and add me to it. I'm not just a patch that you can add to your old system. I am something new. And then he says the same thing with the wineskin analogy. If you got old wineskins, you can't just keep pouring it in because wine ferments and expands and eventually the weak skins will break. You need to get new skins if you're going to have new wine. So it's an interesting point to think about because we've, we've spent a lot of time in this class showing connections to the Old Testament, have we? How Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament <coughs> prophecies. That Jesus is the end to a story that's being for thousands and thousands of years. So he does have a connection, a tie back to the Old Testament, but there is also something new about him. He isn't just, just a continuation of the Old Testament, but with his coming, he is bringing in a new era, okay, where you and I as his followers, we're no longer under the Mosaic Law, and we're certainly not under these other traditions that the Jewish people had built up. And again, he's showing a great deal of authority, right? Because he's, he's able to scold these disciples of John and tell them how they should rightly think about him and these traditions. All right, then there's this last three miracles in this section. So first of all, Jesus re- restores a girl who's died, and then he's also able to heal this woman who's been hemorrhaging for years. So the story about the girl, she is, she is genuinely dead. And Matthew makes a point of that because he says when, when uh, Jesus goes to the house, the funeral ceremony has already begun. So these people who are playing pipes in their culture, these are probably professional people that were hired by her parents in order to lead this, this funeral 
I don't want to call it a celebration. It's more like a wake. I mean, this, this thing that's going on that was consistent with their culture involved people professionally playing instruments. So if they've had the time to organize that and get them there and that's going on, this little girl is, is truly dead. And she's been dead for some time. And Jesus simply walks into her room and wakes her up as easily as I could wake it, walk into my room and wake up my daughter. Perhaps even easier, right? Because sometimes I have a hard time waking up my daughter. But he just walks in and he wakes her up. But she's dead, right? He doesn't have to do any special incantation. He's not even like Elijah where he has to lay over or any of the other things that we're used to in the Old Testament. He just says her name, calls her little girl, right? And she, she wakes right up. But then on the way, right, on the way to actually heal her, there's this other little story where a woman comes up in the crowd and she just touches the fringes of Jesus' outer garment. So the Jewish men at that time were wearing long outer garments that had tassels around the bottoms of them, and she just touches one of those tassels, and she's healed. So it's interesting that, the, remember, the girl's father, he wants Jesus to come touch her, right? This man actually, or this woman actually reaches out and demonstrates faith by touching the cloak. So in both instances, there's this emphasis on touching Christ, either Christ touching the girl or the woman touching the cloak. And she's healed instantly of something that doctors had been unable to cure her from. All right, then Jesus restores the sight of two blind men. So he meets these two men here in verses 27 through 31. It's very significant. Not only do they call out for mercy, but they call him what in verse 27? the son of David, right? So two blind men who are seeing better than some of the religious leaders around them, right? The religious leaders have perfectly good physical eyes, but they're completely missing the point of who Jesus is. But two physically blind men, actually spiritually speaking, something we know something has happened inside their heart, right? God has been gracious to them, and they recognize that this is the Messiah. This is the son of David, and they want to have mercy, and they're, and they're healed. And then finally, this last one, it seems to set all by itself, and it's going to set us up for a similar um, healing in chapter uh, 12 that's going to be uh, pivotal to Matthew's story. But Jesus restores a man who's mute, he can't talk, and he's also possessed by demons. And after everything else that he's been doing, so, you know, just see how this fits at the end of this whole section. After all the things that we've seen Jesus do, the Pharisees' answer to that is, well, he must be doing this with the authority of Satan. Right? They can't deny that he's actually doing something, and he's doing something that normal men can't do. But their stubborn, hard hearts refuse to accept what should be obvious, right? And so they decide to, to credit that authority with the prince of demons, which is their way of referring to, to Satan. Okay, We're going to come back to that theme when we get to chapters 11 and 12. Okay, well, Let's flip the page. I'll flip the slide. We're going to get ready to talk about the, the second discourse in chapter 10. But I'll stop for a second see if you have any, any questions. Yes, sir. Right. But, but, you know, that the lead-up, I mean, there was, it wasn't just a, you know, a sudden, a, you know, abrupt stop. I mean, there was 
a transition. Mm -hmm. And Jesus was saying things that were getting people were getting people ready for new. Something new, yeah. Yeah, I I think you're right. He's dropping hints, not only that he's gonna be gone for a while, but that they aren't going to be living underneath the Mosaic law anymore. I think the strongest hint is coming up when he tells them that they that all food is clean now. Right? And so he's laying the groundwork for what you know Peter's gonna see in that vision. This one isn't as obvious because it seems like the fasting that they were doing isn't actually part of the law. It's just part of their traditions. Otherwise, Jesus and his disciples would have been doing it. So here I don't think he's necessarily speaking about the setting aside of the Mosaic law, but he is definitely talking about the fact that he can't just be added to their existing traditions, which then would fit in with what he'll say later about the law. So he, he has definitely a connection to the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament. But he's not just a continuation of what's been there. He's, he's actually something new. Yep. You can see where the Pharisees were about staying from the Gentiles. But we saw where Elisha, maybe, maybe the Jews in exile were much more comfortable with being with Gentiles. Because like Elisha was staying in the home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that thought came to me like it's become more pharisaical in Jesus' time than back in the prophet's time. It seems like it would have just differed on the person. You know, just like if we said today Americans believe X, you know, we can't really do that, right? Because Americans believe a hundred different things. It's the same about saying, what did the Jewish people in Jesus' day believe? You know, they're, a, they're a very diverse group in among themselves. So you had, you had Sadducees who seemed to have been very interested in political power attached to the temple, but strangely enough, they don't seem to believe in things that we think a religious person would believe in, like angels or the resurrection. You've got the Pharisees who are very devout religiously and probably don't like interacting with Gentiles. But then you got this whole group of people called the sinners who seem to have been very comfortable just living like Gentiles. You know, they would have gone to, um, they would have gone to the gymnasiums, they would have gone to the circuses. You know, none of this type of thing would have bothered them. And then there's probably a whole lot of people in the middle, you know, that are, that are a little bit of both. But uh, we do know, and this is going to come up in chapter 10, you know, that they had this custom of that when they did have to go into Gentile areas, that when they would leave, they would shake the dust off of their shoes. Because Jesus is going to apply that to Jewish people who reject him. And as far as we know, most of these Roman roads were paved. And so their shoes weren't really getting that dirty that they had to be shaked out. It was more of a symbolic gesture that we think so little of you that we don't even want to take our dirt, you know, your dirt home with us. Um, so, yeah, they, def they definitely, I mean, if I think, I think it would be safe to say that most Jewish people still would have looked down on Gentiles. They would have been very proud of the fact that they were the chosen people, the descendants of Abraham. Yeah, I was, and, I was just yeah. something changed before, because Elisha didn't seem to show that. No. I think it probably is the captivity that does a lot of that, right? They, they have a strong sense of the fact we got into exile because we became pagan. And so we never want to become pagan again. So when Jesus comes on the scene, there's, there's no idolatry, like as in physical idols. They're not living that way. But what they have created is a, a, a hypocrisy, an external conformity to the law so they look good on the outside. And then they think they're safe from going back into captivity, but they don't actually have a heart that wants to repent when John and Jesus show up and start preaching repentance. All right, well, let's look at the next of the, the discourses. So in chapter 10, Jesus gives this instructions to his followers. And as I say here on the slide, I think you could kind of uh, summarize this as instruction on the mission of Christ's followers. 
So the Sermon on the Mount tells us what repentance looks like, what a true repenter would live like. This is more on the advancing of that mission, the preaching of that gospel. What's that going to look like when you and I go out into this world and tell people about Jesus? Okay? Jesus told us ahead of time what that's going to be like for us. He warned us that it's going to be difficult, and he gives us strong encouragement not to be afraid, okay? because he knew ahead of time that our natural tendency as frail humans would be to be scared of what people would do to us, what people would say about us, because we're going to be going out into a, a dangerous world. And he sets this up by actually sending the 12. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 10, this is where the, the 12 disciples are first mentioned in Matthew's account. Uh, actually, we get a list of all 12 of their names in verses 2 through 4, all the way down to Judas, who eventually will betray him. They get to go out with the same authority that Jesus had. So not only are they preaching, but they actually get to do the miracles. Because remember, the miracles validate the message. The miracles show everyone that the message is true. So they get the ability to do both. Okay? So they're casting out spirits. They're healing every kind of disease and sickness. And Jesus sets this up. If you go back into chapter uh, 9, end of chapter 9, Verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And then the twelve, they're the, the initial answer to that problem. But I think as the discourse goes along, we realize that he's not just speaking to the twelve. Some things are specific to them. They only apply to them, like the casting out of demons and the healings. But there's also ways that they represent us and that we can see ourselves in them and that the things Jesus says to them apply to us. Just like when we get to the end of the gospel and he gives the Great Commission, he's not just talking to those 11 men, he's also talking to us. Okay, so they're serving as representatives. But the problem that Jesus sees is that the people of Israel are like sheep without a shepherd. That's what he says there at the end of chapter 9. And he's, he's taking that from the Old Testament. So that's an that's expression of the people not having a good leader. So in Numbers 27, that's the first time it shows up. Uh, Moses has just been told by God that he's going to die. He's going to go up in the mountain and pass away. And so he's, he's asking God, well, then you need to appoint, please, somebody else who can lead the people so that they won't be like sheep without a shepherd because the shepherd, remember, represented the king, okay? And then in 2 Kings twenty two seventeen, that's that strange story. Remember when Ahab dies, he gets the, chair, the arrow that hits him in his chariot. It just seems to be random. But ahead of time, he had his false prophets arguing with the true prophet over whether he was going to be safe or not. And the true prophet that nobody wanted to listen to, he actually has a vision, Micaiah, and he says, I saw the people of Israel like sheep without a shepherd. And that was his way of saying Ahab was going to die. They weren't going to have a king. Okay? So Jesus is looking at his fellow Jewish people in the first century, and he's saying, you're without a good leader. You're without a good king. You're without him, right? And you're, you're scattered. He's seen some of them right there in Galilee, but he knows they're actually scattered all over the Mediterranean world, some of them that never even came back from captivity. And the solution to their problem is to turn from their sins and trust in Christ. Because eventually, when the whole nation of Israel does repent, they'll be restored and they'll be <coughs> resurrected as a nation. Okay? So point two, in this discourse, Jesus sends his disciples to the lost sheep of Israel. So when you get down to verse six, he's still using the metaphor, right? The people are sheep. The lost sheep likely refers primarily to those 10 of the 12 tribes that did not return from exile. So it's significant that Jesus sends out the 12 
to the lost sheep in Galilee where the exile began. So I think primarily the reason why he starts talking about them as lost sheep because he's referring to the ones who never came home. His fellow countrymen that he knows are scattered in other places. The ones especially that never came home from the Assyrian captivity. Why even today sometimes we'll refer to them as the, the lost tribes of Israel. Okay? Uh, that's probably one of the reasons why Matthew makes a big point at this section of his story to introduce the 12 apostles. Okay, so there were 12 tribes that were scattered that needed a king. And so there's, there's 12 apostles that are being sent out to regather them and tell them about their king, Jesus. The reader is likely intended to have an eye toward the need for Israel's tribal reunification. So rather than the 12 apostles being a reconstituted or a redefined Israel, their number was more likely chosen to point towards the restoration of Israel. All right, so this goes back to what I tried to argue in earlier lessons, that when Jesus is calling the people to repent, he's doing that uh, because that is the key for them to be restored, brought back to their homeland, and to have him again as their king, the Davidic king. Um, their, their lostness, their scatteredness, the fact that they're all over in the Gentile world with bad kings over them, that's a symptom of sin. It's a symptom of the covenant curses. And the only way that's going to be healed is if they recognize who Jesus truly is and what he's done for sinners like them. And they put their trust in him. And so the, the disciples, when they go out and preach the need for repentance, they're part of this regathering process, okay? And it's a process that's going to continue until Jesus actually returns, all right? That's basically what I talk about there in points three and four. I'd kind of like to skip ahead and pick up on what Jesus actually says in the discourse at the top of page 39. But any questions at, the point, at that point there? Jesus is going to make two statements that I think most people find a little difficult, especially the first time they read through this discourse. So right towards the beginning, he's going to say in verses 5 through 8, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. It does, I mean, admit it, it does cause a little bit of tension in our minds the first time we read it. Because Jesus is clearly saying, hey, there's some people I want you to avoid. Or at least he's saying, I don't want you to go directly towards those people. He's telling the 12 that their primary focus is going to be the lost sheep of Israel. And so they're supposed to avoid Gentile areas or towns of the Samaritans. Okay? Now, the way that, remember that when we've looked at that map, the Gentile territory is kind of weaved all the way through. The lines aren't real clear. Jesus, as a little boy, he probably helped Joseph, his adopted father, build a Gentile city that was just right there in, in Galilee, near Nazareth. So there's, there's Gentile cities all the way around. So likely what Jesus means is he's not saying, hey, if, if, it, if you're crossing the street and you see a Gentile, you know, run away from them. He's not saying that. I think he is saying if you, if you meet them, you are able to talk to them, you are able to share the good news, but they're not your primary focus. They're supposed to be headed towards communities where there's Jewish people there because it's the Jewish people primarily who have to repent in order for this kingdom to be established. So, so set them as your focus. Go towards them. Those are the places you should strategic, strategically hit. But I don't think that his command here means that as you're going to them and you happen to meet Gentile people on the way that you have to avoid them. 
And one of the reasons I say that is because as we go through the story, that's what Jesus himself does. That Jesus himself is going to meet Gentiles on the way. He's already met some of them, remember? The, the ruler that he's met earlier in chapter 8. And so I think that that's probably how we should understand what he says here to his disciples. Going down to, to point 4 here. When we get to uh, verses 16 through 22, I think now we've gotten into the section of the discourse that applies more directly to us. So see if we can kind of break that down, what Jesus talks about. So first of all, he gives specific instructions to the 12. So I think that's verses 5 through 15. So his instruction about just going to the lost sheep of Israel, not heading towards towns of Gentiles or Samaritans, we understand that doesn't apply to us, right? That fit their, their, their mission there in the first century. If you look down at uh, verses, uh, verse 8, for example, they're supposed to be healing the sick, they're supposed to be raising the dead, they're supposed to be cleansing the lepers. Again, that doesn't apply to us. They're, they're told, hey, don't even take money with you. So you're supposed to be making this trip so quickly that you're going to be dependent on just people taking care of you when you get there, so don't even take uh, stuff for your journey. We know this is temporary because later, uh, in Luke's version of the, of the Last Supper, he's actually going to tell them, now you should take stuff with you. Okay? So he actually switches it himself. Initially, they're not supposed to take stuff. Later, they are. So we know so far we're reading stuff that's for certain people at a certain time, okay? But when we get down to verse 16, he seems to switch. When he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard, you will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. That's all stuff that happens later. That doesn't happen while Jesus is with them. So he's at least talking about the things that happen in the book of Acts. We'd have to at least say that. But I think he's even going beyond that. I think by this point in the discourse, he stopped just talking about those 12 men, and he's using those 12 men to talk about us as representatives of all of us who go out into a dangerous world and preach the gospel. We have to be prepared to be arrested. Some of us are going to be brought before local governments, some of us will be flogged by Jewish people in their synagogues. Some of us will be brought before governors and kings. Okay? He makes all of these predictions and then later promises, I think, that apply to all of us. Okay? So if we break down that section, the things he talks about, he has warnings regarding persecution. He has a promise there about the Spirit's help. He has warnings regarding families. So he, he warns us ahead of time that our own families sometimes aren't going to accept our status as followers of Christ. There's actually going to be situations where our own family members will persecute us, okay? And we do see that happening in other places in the world today, right? Where family members will turn in uh, loved ones to the government um, to face persecution, but in the midst of all this, he encourages them to continue the mission until, until he actually returns. So there still is this ongoing mission to Israel. So the, the, the need for Israel to repent didn't stop when Jesus left and then just start up again at the end. It's actually continuing through this period that we're living in. Uh, we'll see individual Jewish people come to faith like Paul, the other apostles. But for the most part, the Jewish people are living in a state of apostasy. Most, most Jewish people today, they don't recognize Jesus as their Messiah, right? The ones that do are the exceptions. And we know that at the very end of time, at the end of this age, I should say, at the end of this age, that there's going to be this great outpouring of the Spirit that converts Israel so that they will repent. But in the meantime, Jesus is saying, hey, don't get frustrated by persecution. Don't get bogged down. Just keep going from town to town preaching because your mission will not end until I come. And when I come, I'll make sure that the mission ends. Okay? So you don't have to worry about failure 
this is going to have a good ending to it. So I think that's the second verse in this discourse, I think, that's puzzling and, and actually creates a bunch of different interpretations. When you get down to verse 23, Jesus is in the middle of talking about persecution. This is point five there at the bottom of the page. Jesus says, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Or, I think it could be better translated as the NASB, until the Son of Man comes. Okay, So he's setting up a condition. You need to keep going from town to town, finding the people of Israel. And you need to do that until the Son of Man comes. Well, Christians have looked at that for centuries and been puzzled by that. What does he mean? Because if he's just talking to the twelve, and it's something that they're going to finish within the next few years or their lifetime, that means that this coming of the Son of Man has to be something other than Jesus' second coming, right? That's one way that Christians have interpreted it. So sometimes it gets associated with the day of Pentecost, so maybe the, the coming of the Spirit. Sometimes it gets associated with Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. Sometimes it gets associated with the, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. There's all kinds of different options that have been proposed. But I think the easiest, the simplest, or the, the best way of understanding it is that the Son of Man just means what it always means in the Gospels. It is talking about Jesus' return. The key to understanding the verse is there's two parts to it. One, we have to remember he's not just talking to them. He's talking to them as representatives. Just like when he says to them, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, right? We realize he's talking about them and us, right? All the way to the end of the age. So the same thing is happening here. He's talking to them and us up to the second coming. The second thing is to realize that the construction here is setting up a condition. So the, the finishing of the towns of Israel, it can't take place until the Son of Man comes. Because until the Son of Man comes, the people won't fully repent. They need the coming of Jesus and the work of the Spirit that accompanies that coming in order to change their hearts. That's what the prophet Zechariah, for example, prophesied that when they find themselves at their darkest, when they're surrounded by the armies of Gentiles, when things look completely hopeless, their Messiah will come, there'll be a great outpouring of the Spirit, and they will repent. And so Jesus is talking about everything that's going to happen leading up to that final moment. All right. So if I can just read a little bit of what I wrote there in paragraph 5. Say, the previous section has described the period leading up to Christ's return. So that's everything in verses 16 through 22. Therefore, until the Son of Man comes is likely a reference to the second coming of Christ. And the construction of the phrase presents Christ's return as the necessary condition for bringing the mission to Israel to its promised conclusion. Jesus' followers during that time will not run out of work to accomplish before his return. This interpretation fits within the scope of the discourse and it allows the coming of the Son of Man to maintain its usual meaning in Matthew as opposed to something else like Pentecost or the Jewish War. So what do I mean by the construction? So let me show you another verse earlier in Matthew's Gospel. So at the top we've got Matthew 5.26. This was from the, the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking about, hey, if someone's, if someone's taking you to court because you, you've got uh, a debt, you need to settle it on the way, right? Because if you, if you get into prison, right, and you're not able to, to, uh, to settle the, the account, you won't get out of prison until you've paid the last penny, okay? And in their day, once you got into a debtor's prison, you didn't have much way of making money. So it was pretty hopeless. You were going to be stuck there for a really long time, okay? So Jesus says this in very strong language. So truly, I tell you, that's his way of saying, hey, listen up. I'm about ready to tell you something very important. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So see what that's doing? That, that part in yellow is setting up a condition. 
if the condition's met, then the line above it comes true. So if you do pay the last penny, guess what? You get out, right? Because that's the condition. That's the same construction that he's using here in chapter 1023. He says, truly I tell you, so listen up. I'm about ready to tell you something important. You will not finish going through the towns of Israel, which if I could paraphrase that, that means just you won't finish preaching to Jewish people around the world until the Son of Man comes. Until the, but when the Son of Man comes, that's the condition. When it's met, then your mission to the Jewish people will be finished because then they will repent. They will be restored. Not every Jewish people, Jewish person, but the, the nation as a whole. Let me show you a few more places where I think this holds true. So I think Matthew has three places in his gospel where he deliberately sets these up in parallel fashion so that all three of these verses can be read together, okay? So the first one we've looked at before, this is from the Sermon on the Mount where he was talking about his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So notice what he does there. He says, truly I tell you, so listen up, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. So there he says the condition twice. So I, I put it in yellow for you so you could see the parallelism. That's just saying the same thing two ways. So until heaven and earth passing away and until everything is accomplished, you're talking about the same time period, right? That's the return of Jesus at the end of this age. That's when everything will be accomplished and that's when we'll receive a new heavens and a new earth, right? When that happens, then all of the Old Testament prophecies then can pass away because they will have been fulfilled, right? So that, those conditions are what's necessary in order for that thing in white to come true. Then you have the one that we just talked about in Matthew 10, 23. Notice the condition, it's the same time period. These are all talking about Jesus' return. And then the last one is probably the hardest one for us to think about, and we'll, we'll come back to it because it's in chapter 24. We won't get there for a while. But there, Jesus says something similar. He says, truly I tell you, so listen up, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So that he said the same thing, I think, four different ways. So until heaven and earth pass away, until everything is accomplished, until the Son of Man comes, until all these things have happened. Those are basically all a complex of events that are going to happen at Jesus' second coming. And that's when the, the story of the Old Testament finally comes to its great conclusion, right? All the things that we are still hoping for will, will end. That's why, going back to Matthew chapter 10, we need to stay encouraged carrying out Jesus' mission, right? Because we are on the winning team. We are on the side, by God's grace, that will enter into a new heaven and a new earth, right? It doesn't look that way now, right? We don't look like the winning team when we, I mean, maybe on Sunday mornings we're all dressed up looking nice, right? But from the world's perspective, we don't look like the winners, right? We don't look like the scientific ones, the wise ones of this age, as Paul will say in the Corinthians, right? But we actually are on the side of, of Christ, and he actually will fulfill everything that he's promised and so in that, that next section there, point six, verses 24 through, 20, or 24 through 39, he keeps just hammering home this point, don't be afraid. So look at verse 26, verse 28, and verse 31. Three times, do not fear. Don't be afraid. He knows that's, that's going to be our fear, <laughs> no pun intended. That's going to be the danger, right? That we're going to be scared, all right? But he gives all kinds of good reasons, okay? Like one of the reasons he'll give is the worst they can do to you is they can kill you, right? But they can only take your body. Instead, you should fear the one who can take your soul, right? He does a play on words there with fear. So don't fear them. Actually fear, fear God, all right? Point seven, Jesus' first coming did not bring peace to the world as will his second coming. So he makes this very clear in verse 34. 
He's quoting in verses 34 and 35, he quotes another little bit of the Old Testament. He quotes from Micah 7, 6 to make it clear that our own family members will sometimes turn against us. So as sad and painful as that is when it happens, and it is, our Lord knew about it ahead of time. And he is a sympathetic high priest. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to have family members who rejected him, his own small little village, his own hometown, people he grew up with. He knows what it's like to be us. And he warned us ahead of time that we were going to be living in a world where a man would be against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies would be members of his own household. All right? So then in light of that, verses 37 through 39, that paragraph there, he instructs, he instructs us regarding our, our true love. Um, what, what our true love should be, the focus that we should have on Him, the fact that we should love Him above everyone else. So He doesn't say we don't love our father or mother. He doesn't say we shouldn't love our sons or our daughters, right? He just says we can't love any of them more than we love Him. And when we think about it, we can only properly love them if we love Him first. It's by loving Him supremely and having a right relationship with him that we can actually best love them. So the best thing for them is actually for us to love him. And if we take our attention off of him and love something else, well, he says it two different ways, right? That we're not actually worthy of him. And then he's going to say, we actually have to be like people who take up their cross and follow after him. Now, of course, it's, it's impossible for us to read that without thinking about his cross, right? Because we know how the story ends. That might be getting a little too ahead of the story, right? Because if we're reading the story for the first time, we might not yet know that Jesus died on the cross. But Matthew knows it, right? And he, Matthew knows that most people who are reading this are probably going to know it. And I think he already knows, and, and we now know from, from studying their culture, what a cross was thought of in their time period. Okay, so remember this slide that we looked at on our first night together? This was the graffiti from somewhere in, in Rome, probably a couple hundred years after Matthew wrote, wrote. Okay, somewhere between the first and third century. Someone is probably making fun of a Christian. So that's probably what's going on here. A little graffiti making fun of a Christian because Alexamenos is here worshiping his God. And his God is actually a donkey that's, that's nailed to a cross. Because they would have found that absolutely absurd, right? No Roman citizens died on crosses. It was reserved for the lowest of the low. It was reserved for slaves. And it was something you didn't survive. I mean, that's another point. If you took up your cross and walked with it, you were taking the, the cross beam. So in most places where they regularly had crucifixions, they would have the vertical poles already in place. They would give the condemned person the cross part, the, vertical, the horizontal part to carry. He would carry that to the execution site. He would be nailed to that, hoisted up, and then attached to the vertical piece. But if you saw a man walking by with a little group of Roman soldiers and that cross beam, he wasn't coming back. You know, this was, you know, it's one of the, Quotes here, I took some quotes from several different commentators. The one commentator says, you know, this, isn't a, this is only a one-way journey. This, there is no two-way journey to this. Um, I think the other aspect of that is if someone's walking to their death, they really only have one thing that they're focused on. You know, a condemned person, I'm assuming, isn't making plans about other things that they're going to do later. They're not thinking about all the things that they're going to do in the future. They're not going to be worried so much about what they've owned or what they've accomplished. There's really just a single focus, what they're walking to, right? And so that, I think, again, that's the powerful part of this imagery that Jesus uses, that we have to be people who are dead to ourselves and fully focused on him. 
There's only one thing in front of us that matters above all else, and that's him, pleasing him, carrying out his mission. And that single focus and that death to ourself two times in Matthew. He's going to say it here, and then he's going to come back to it later. He compares to taking up a cross. So Luke actually, he adds the word daily. So just in case we're afraid, or we might be tempted to think that this is like a one-time dedication type thing. You walk an aisle, and that was you're taking up your cross. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a daily thing, a constant thing that you and I have to do, that we have to decide, I'm going to die to myself and the things that I care about, and I'm going to put the interests of Christ above all else. All right? It's a, it's a powerful metaphor, but since you and I have never seen someone walking to a cross, it's probably not quite as powerful to us as it was to the original hearers that would have seen this regularly. Okay? It would have been like a man in an orange jumpsuit right, with chains you know, walking to an execution. It would have been something that they would have seen regularly. All right? Any questions? Then I'll finish up with the last paragraph. It ends on a high note. Just uh, real quickly to uh, those uh, quotes, I think the one from Matthew 5, 18, until heaven and earth pass away. Yes. And not one, not one thing from the law. You know, but how do you square that with uh, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but obedience to the command? In other words, yeah, we have to weigh the law. We're, we're not under the law in this dispensation that, that it almost implies there that... That the law is still in force? Yeah. Uh, my answer to that is I think Jesus is talking about the prophetic function of the law. Oh, okay. So he's not talking about the commandments that we still have to keep. Oh, okay. He's saying that the... Basically, if I can paraphrase him, he's saying when I came, even though I'm not what you expected, I didn't just wipe away all the Old Testament promises. The Old Testament promises still will be fulfilled. They won't get erased, so to speak, until they're done. And they won't get done until the new heaven and earth is here or until all things have been accomplished. So he's giving it as a reassurance to his fellow Jewish people that they, the believing ones, that they were right about the promises. They will come true. They just haven't come true yet. And, and we're still waiting 2,000 years now uh, for, for many of them to come true. So what I was trying to show in that slide is that the same time frame is being referenced. It's the same condition being described different ways. All right, so he's talking about the, his return at the end of this age in order to, what we know now from the book of Revelation will be in a thousand year rule, and a final judgment, and then a new heavens and new earth. That whole package at the end is his second coming. And that's when these Old Testament promises will be fulfilled. So the, the discourse does have a little bit of a gloomy feature to it because we've emphasized uh, the persecution, right? Jesus warns us about it ahead of time. But it also ends with this optimistic note. And this isn't the first little bit of optimism, right? Because he's also talked about how the things that are hidden will be revealed. He, makes, he says that in verse 26. Most people think that's probably a, a reference to the, the final judgment. You know, People can say lies about us today. People can not truly understand who we are today. But at the final judgment, everything will be revealed. Okay? The truth will get out. This seems to be what Jesus is saying there in verse 26. But he's also saying that while we're here on earth, that the way... We interact with each other. The way we receive each other is actually a way of receiving him. And he's going to come back to this when we get to chapter 25. Remember when he has the, the parable about the sheep and the goats? So here he says, if you welcome someone. So if someone's out in the world preaching the gospel and you welcome them, you've actually welcomed him because the, the followers of Jesus are treated as if they are Jesus, all right? If you, if you give this person a cup of water, you've given it to him. And again, he also he calls us little ones. This is the first time he's done that. When we get to chapter 18, which is the other parallel discourse to this one, he's going to do that all over the place. 
but he considers us his family members. So he's not calling us children. He's not belittling us. It's just a term of endearment that we, we here in this dangerous world that we're living in carrying out this task, he still cares about us, right? He still cares about us just like we were family members. He's interested in what is going on. And any kind of help that we can give to each other in the midst of this kind of world that we live in, we've done it to Jesus, right? So if we, if we ever want to sit and think, what could I do for Christ, right? We'll do something for one of his children, right? Because he himself said that if you do something for one of his children, his family members, you've done it for him. It's, it's a tangible way that we actually can show expressions of love and devotion to our Savior, to all these people that represent him in this world. All right? I think I'm out of time. Wes's alarm went off, so it's time to go. <laughs> All right. I hope everybody has a good Thanksgiving break, and uh, Lord willing, I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks again. Thank you.